Well, good morning. You may still have your Bible open to Revelation 21, but if you have closed it, you can turn it back there. And even as we read together and listened to Gerald read through the passage, um, when we get to this scripture in Revelation 21 and 22, really in many places in the book of Revelation, but especially here, we want so badly to immediately pull out the sketch pad in our mind, don't we? And we just want to imagine and get caught up in the imagery that's there. And we want to try to figure out as best we can as many details about this place that we want to know. And you know what? That's not a bad longing. That's not a bad thing that this passage causes us to just well up in our imaginations and try to imagine what this place is like. But brothers and sisters, we we must be careful with that as well. Because Revelation 21 and 22 is not given to us so much so that we would set our affections on a place. I put in your sermon notes there in the top a quote by Hamilton where he says, John's description is meant to be overwhelming in proportion, and it is, but we're not intended to try to make it into a blueprint. It's not designed for us to get captivated by a place. It is given to us and is there so that we would be captivated by his presence. And that is what this place envisages for us, or it should. As we read through and we're captivated by this dazzling picture that we see, it should turn our our affections and our attentions on his presence. And brothers and sisters, that is exactly the point. I believe that the crescendo in all of Scripture comes in the beginning of this chapter in a very simple phrase that sometimes we pass over because of the beauty surrounding it, and that phrase being God makes His dwelling place with man. This is what God intends. This is what God has created for. This is His purpose. And here in Revelation 21, we see that He has exactly what He has set out to have. And that is his people in his presence. In fact, we need to understand that this is the very objective of our redemption. And we see a hint of that in 1 Peter 3.18 where it says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous, for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us back to God. Not so that he might bring us to a place. But it's okay to get caught up in the place. But just understand that the essence of the place and what makes the place beautiful is not the place itself, but the fact that the place is in the presence of God fully. And I pray this morning as we work through this chapter, the rest of this chapter, that we would leave captivated by his presence. And we would be reminded that in redemption, he has placed his spirit within us. And in an already not yet way, we are already invited to share in his presence. I pray that it would stir our hearts that way. We've already read the passage. Let's pray together and then we'll begin to work through it together. So, Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts that way today. God, help us to see this morning a glimpse of the end of your redemption. God, the fact that you will have what you set out to have. So, God, we thank you for that. Thank you that we can rest in that. Thank you that we can rest in your sovereign plan and your good purposes and your will that will not be thwarted. 
And God, we celebrate that today, that we can rest in every promise that you have given us because we can see here, uh, we can see that plan in its fruition here, God. And I pray, as the Apostle Paul did for the church, God, that we would know the hope to which you have called us. So, Father, help us to celebrate that today. And, God, I pray more than anything else we would just be captivated by your presence. Uh, Thank you for the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus through faith. Thank you that you have filled us. If we are in Christ, that you filled us with your presence, Father, and we are invited to come into it. We thank you for that reality this morning, God, as we come and approach your word. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit to us corporately that helps us in properly interpreting your word and applying it. And, Father, I pray that we would just lean into this, God, and be filled with hope. And that hope just wouldn't be a projected future for us, God, but that hope would have real implications for our life right now. So, God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift it is for us to share in it together. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we see first here in verse 9, we see the city's contrast. As we begin to work through beginning in verse 9, we're going to see a contrast. Look at verse 9 through 11 with me. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high, uh, great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem, or the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So that should call us back a couple of chapters. So if you will, turn with me back to chapter 17. Because the language that we see here is very similar to what we see uh, presented to us there in chapter 17. Much of the language is the same. Let's read just the first five verses together so we can see this contrast and see how these things connect together. Beginning in verse 1, see if this sounds familiar to you. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on, on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven uh, seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. I'll go ahead and read through verse 6 there. Do you see the contrast? We see a contrast between the harlot and the bride. And what this is designed to show us, brothers and sisters, and what we need to see is that the bride's glory far exceeds the harlot's outcome. And can you imagine for a group of people who at first received this word from John, they're dealing with pervasive um, just assault against them because of the face. Persecution is running rampant. They're living in a difficult place where it is difficult to live out their faith, and they're just being assaulted from all sides. And this word is given to them as encouragement to look forward, to look forward And the encouragement is your end as the bride of Christ is so much greater than the harlot's outcome. And brothers and sisters, we need to see that today as well, don't we? Don't give your heart to this place. 
Don't give your heart to this life. Don't give your heart to Babylon. Instead, keep your eyes focused on Christ and see in these verses your outcome. And this is what the angel says to John. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Hamilton writes, unlike Babylon's now worthless gold and jewels and pearls and her wasted luxury, the glory of the holy city will never fade, will never fade. The beauty that we see here, the glory that we see here, the radiance that we see here, it's never going to dull. It will never fade. And we see here that the new Jerusalem is not only a place, it's also a people. And it's not only a people, it's also a place. And this is the image that we get here. And we learn some things right away when we see these contrasts. First, it tells us that the angel carried John to a great high mountain as opposed to the wilderness where John gets the vision of the harlot. He is taken to a high mountain. The first thing he says about this city is he calls it holy. This word means set apart, brilliant, light. It points to beauty. It points to purity. It's a holy city coming down, he sees, from this high mountain. It's coming down, it says. Its origin is the, is the glory of God itself. This city comes from the glorious presence of God. It is God's presence coming down. I love what Russ Moore says. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear this and be reminded of this. We need to make sure that we get our theology and our eschatology, our understanding of the end times, from the Scriptures. And Russell Moore corrects some things when he says the point of the gospel is not that we would go to heaven when we die. Instead, it is that heaven will come down, transforming and renewing the earth and the entire universe. We lay up treasure in heaven, but it doesn't stay in heaven. Isn't that good? We focus our minds on heaven, but heaven comes down to earth. Ultimately, our hope is in new creation, transformation and glorification of our bodies and with them, the cosmos itself. John sees this holy city coming down. God's space will be united with man's space and God will once again make his dwelling among his people. He goes on to say that it has the glory of God. Everything about this place reflects his glory in light of his full, unfiltered, unveiled presence. We'll see more about that in just a moment. It says, he uses the word there, radiance. I love this word radiance. It means brilliance, but it carries a deeper meaning in the original language. It means light giver. Everything that we see about this city is only designed to point our eyes to the true source of beauty and light. Its radiance comes from the glory of God, not the stuff with which the city is made. He is the light giver. He is the one that makes this city brilliant. It points us back to Isaiah 60. By the way, this chapter is thick with Old Testament allusions. Thick with showing us that exactly all we see in the Old Testament is going to come to fruition here in the end when this city comes down. Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 2 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Everything that we see, everything that we see here that's beautiful should point our eyes to the source of light that makes it beautiful. I was thinking about a diamond, how beautiful a diamond is. But a diamond isn't very beautiful when the lights are off, is it? 
What makes uh, the diamond beautiful? How do we understand the beauty of the diamond is when the light hits it, it refracts and reflects all through the diamond and shows off the brilliance of the diamond. The Lord's glory will be that which makes this place beautiful. It's all about his presence. Herman Bavink writes this, Though these ideas interpreted thus by images, they are not illusions or fabrications. But this worldly depictions of otherworldly realities, all that is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing and commendable in the whole of creation in heaven and earth is gathered up in the future city of God, renewed, recreated, boosted to its highest glory. Can you imagine with me? And when you close your eyes and imagine what captivates your mind. I pray it's not the place. I pray that it's the glory of the presence that is there. Look on in verses 12 through 14. I just about read from chapter 19. Let me flip my page. Verse 12, it had a great high wall. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And on the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. We see something of the people that will dwell in this city. First, it tells us that there is a great high wall. Consider what has just transpired. Consider what we just read in chapter 17 where we see at one time the rebels in their sin and what they have done to God's creation. And as these people are thinking about this, their mind should immediately be brought to ease of the security that's going to be in this place. That's what those walls point to is security. These walls make it impregnable. In fact, it says that there will be 12 angels there, the very presence of God in this city. It points to the fact that this city is the city of God. That should call us back to Zechariah 1, 16, where it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And listen to what he says in 2, 5. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. God is the one. His presence is what will make this place secure, not the size of the walls. And we'll see that in just a few moments. Notice all the allusions to the number of 12 here. 12 is a, is a number that should call for us completion. That's what that number is symbolic of in Scripture. And it tells us that there is going to be some inscription of names. First, inscription of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But also then, inscription of the names of the 12 apostles. What is being communicated to us here? What we see here is that God's people will be complete. One people together. Old Testament, New Testament, all of the people of God. God will have his inheritance. He will have what he sets out to have in the inheritance of his people. And really, this is the culmination of what we see in Ephesians 2. Turn over there with me. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, I'm going to read verses 11 through 22. 
Therefore, remember, Paul writes, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen to verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a remarkable contrast we see from chapter 17 to chapter 21. We see the perfection of God's place in the perfection and fullness of his presence and his people there perfectly brought together exactly what he intended for us to have there in the city. Second, we begin to see the city's description beginning in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me back in Revelation 21. John goes on to say, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Did my pack go out? You all hear me? Sorry. Should I grab a mic? What do you think? Say again. Okay, I'll just talk. Oh, there we go. Back. Okay. Verse 15 again. <laughs> And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. We see here that the angel has a an instrument of measure here. He's using a, a, a rod of gold that should take us back to the um, the vision that Ezekiel received from the Lord back in Ezekiel 40. And we see the, the beginning of that vision there and how that was all set up. And then we see the vision of of the holy city after that through the next seven or eight, uh, seven or eight chapters Listen to Ezekiel 40, 2 through 4, and listen to the, to the connection there. Verse 2, in, in visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And once again, we are reminded that this city is all that the Old Testament pointed to being. We see the fulfillment here in Revelation 21 of everything that the Old Testament pointed to that, that about this city. And I think that we should walk away from this too. And we see that because there is measuring happening, I think that we can be confident in saying that this place is tangible. It's real. 
It's measurable. We're not just talking about an ethereal experience that we will have one day. Once again, the objective of our redemption is resurrection in physical bodies to experience a physical place, to experience each other in a physical place. And because we see measuring going on here, I think that we can deduce that, that this place is tangible and real and measurable. And what are those measurements? Look at verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. It tells us 12,000 stadia there, which is the equivalent of about 1,500 miles. So if you can imagine, it's a big place, a big city. It tells us that it is a perfect cube. And I thought about bringing some renderings. Actually, JT mentioned it this week. He said, you ought to, you ought to get some renderings of uh, this new city that people have drawn or illustrated. It's a gold box. That's what comes up. If you look it up on Google, that's what comes up is a bunch of different renderings of a gold box. It's a box. It's a cube, right? Once again, this is not given to us so that we would make a blueprint. There's something deeper going on here. The fact that the shape is a cube communicates a couple of things to us. First of all, these measurements are approximately the size of the known Hellenized world. I think what's being communicated is, is that this city is going to be the whole of creation, that this place is perfect in size and it's big enough to hold all of God's people for eternity. I think that's being communicated to us. But even deeper than that, it is to bring our minds back to the cube shape of the holy of holies within the cube shape of the temple. One person mentioned this as a massive, most holy place. What's being communicated to us here? is that the entire universe is like the most holy place of the temple. Here is the point. The whole of creation, including God's people, be found in the hot spot of God's holy presence. And that should point us back to verse 11, speaking of the glory of God and his radiance. Brothers and sisters, this is not the Shekinah cloud that we see in the Old Testament. This is not the heavily veiled room found in the center of the temple that literally almost nobody had access to. This is not the incarnated presence of God wrapped in a tent of flesh. This is God's presence in its fullness. And we are able to dwell in it because we have come to the completion of our salvation. We have been made holy. So we can dwell there in his presence. I love what it says in Ezekiel 43. Verses 3 through 5 says, And the vision, and in the vision I saw, was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chebar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. All of the new creation will be the temple of God, and his his, his, his presence will be there in its fullness, and we will dwell in the fullness of his presence. And when we think back through Scripture, every time someone comes into the presence of God, what happens? They're undone. But he will complete this work that he has begun in us. And we will be made holy, and we will be able to dwell in his presence fully. It says, beginning in verse 17, that he also measured its wall. Look with me, verse 17. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. 
The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Notice that the first of the jewels mentioned was jasper. And jasper in scripture always points to the presence of God. It's always used to show the presence of God. And I think that that's the point here. He says that the wall is 144 cubits. That's over 200 feet thick. Can you imagine how thick this wall is? But again, we're not called to sketch out what a wall may look like. And that's not even the point. This wall, again, points to security, but the security doesn't come from the thickness of the wall. It comes from the holy presence of God. And the theme here of this wall is purity. It's the sanctity of this place. It reflects the purity of the one who dwells there. And it has as much to do with God's presence as the structure of the wall itself. In fact, in Ezekiel's vision in 4835, he says the name of the city that he sees is the Lord is there. That is the essence of this place, is the presence of God. Notice the foundations of the wall point us back to Isaiah 54. Verses 11 and 12 say, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, And lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, their gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. I don't think that we ought to go through all of these stones and try to draw out imagery for each one. I don't think that's the point. I don't think that they are all allegories trying to point to something else. And I think that if we set off trying to do that, then we're going to miss the point of this. Here is the point. Each of these stones are beautiful, yet unique All of them are clear and bright, all of them refracting and reflecting the radiance of the brilliance of God and the beauty of his people. And that is what's being communicated to us is the beauty of his presence. I think it also recalls the beauty of Eden to us. Once again, God will have what he set out to have in creation. And in Exodus uh, or Ezekiel 28, it says this, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On that day you were created, they were prepared. It's it's to take our minds back to the beauty of the garden. But brothers and sisters, this new Jerusalem will be even more beautiful than the original garden. That's what it's supposed to illuminate in our minds for us. Also, it recalls the stones that were inlaid in the priest's breastplate. We see that in Exodus 28. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be on the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set on gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. Here is what this imagery is intended to display for us. Three things. Number one, the perfection of the new creation. This place is perfect. It is brilliant. Secondly, the glory of God in it. And thirdly, the purity of God's people. Hamilton writes this. He says, God's glory is reflected in Eden in the tabernacle and in the high priest's vestments. 
And it will be supremely displayed in the new Jerusalem that comes down from God, having his glory as the foundations of the wall are adorned with these stones that shine with the beauty of God. The passage goes on to tell us 12 gates were 12 pearls, 12 solid pearls. The street was pure gold like transparent glass. Once again, this imagery is designed to help us see something about the presence and glory of God. What we would consider the greatest treasure here is used for common purposes there. I've heard Gerald say that a few times, and every time it just dazzles me to think about that. All of the things that our hearts would long for here is just used for common purposes there. Why? Because the true treasure is God, and the essence of true blessing is his presence. It's not the stuff that the city is made of. The true essence of blessing is being in his presence. And so we see some ramifications from this. What is it? What flows from that? What are the realities for us based on the fact that we will be fully in his presence? We see in the city's essence, beginning in verse 22. We are told of some things that will be noticeably absent from this city. But again, the point is not a literal one, but a sim- symbolic one to highlight the reality of God's full presence. Look at verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in the city. <clears throat> For its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. So we see that there is no more temple. As long as there is uncleanness, there is a need for a temple structure where God's presence and truth are in contrast to the uncleanness. And even in that, we see the mercy of God, don't we? We should be confronted with the mercy of God every time the the presence of God is spoken of throughout the Old Testament. That he dwells among his people, but if you go into his presence too lightly, too casually, you're done. Right. There's mercy in that and there's need for him to be veiled from his people to protect the people so that they can also live in his presence. One commentator says, whereas formerly there was a structure, a tent or a building that was holy because God was there. Now the structure is the whole of reality. And that is the point. God's presence is not bound. God's presence is not symbolic. You've noticed all the way through the book of Revelation, Gerald has done a wonderful job of contrasting this idea of being in the temple and outside the temple and the ramifications for those who are in the temple, for those outside the temple. In the new creation, there is no outside of the temple. We all dwell in the temple, in his presence. Once again, Bavink says this. Now, as we look into the mirror of God's revelation, we only see his image. Then we will see him face to face. And know as we are known. Contemplation, understanding, and enjoyment of God make up the essence of our future blessedness. All the saints together will then fully comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. They will come together, be filled with all the fullness of God, inasmuch as Christ himself, filled with the fullness of God, will in turn fill the believing community with himself and make it his fullness. We will experience the fullness of his presence together. There is no need of a temple. We will dwell in the temple together with him in his presence. We read in verse 23 the first reality of this. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. We see that there is no need of sun or moon. He is our light. He is our life. And brothers and sisters, I don't know if there will be a literal sun or moon there. I don't know. I don't think that the passage is designed to tell us that it will not be there. But there will be no need for it because the glory of God is in its fullness there. 
And we will walk in the light of his glory. One commentator says everyone in the heavenly city will be illuminated and strengthened by the Lord at all times. It's a struggle, isn't it, to walk in truth? I was thinking about that this past week. Just situations causing me lately just to fall on my knees and beg God for wisdom. Beg God to help me understand the truth. I'm trying to understand what's going on here. I, I, I don't know. I tend to want to believe this, but I don't know for sure. And my mind has been brought back time and again to the prayer of Paul for the believers in Ephesus. And he prays that the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, same word that's used for this book, the spirit, uh, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, what does he pray that that spirit would do? Would illuminate the eyes of our hearts. To know three beautiful things. To know uh, our, the, the, the hope that we are called to. To know who we are as his people and as his inheritance. And to know the power that is available to us through him. You know why Paul has to pray that prayer? Because of the darkness of our hearts. Because of the pervasiveness of sin. Because I'm so prone to try to lean on my own understanding. Because I am so prone to wander from his truth and try to make sense of this life on my own. And brothers and sisters, it's a struggle. And we pray what Paul did, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would illuminate the eyes of our hearts so that we can know and walk in truth. But when we are there, we will walk in it in its fullness. There will be no need for that prayer anymore. We will walk in the fullness of truth always. Isn't that a beautiful reality for God's people? The truth is the light of his glory shone before these things were created and his glory will outshine them into eternity. Isaiah 60 verses 19 through 20 says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall come the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall, be no, shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. The truth is, in this life, we always walk in the residue of deception. We always carry it. And we always are doubting ourselves, or doubting the truth, or, or trying to lean in to understand the truth. We always carry that residue. And one day, when his city comes, that residue will be no more. We will walk fully in his light. And we see that God the Father is the source and Christ is the mediator of the bride's radiant light who will walk in perpetual truth and purity. Verse 24. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Two implications here that I think are kind of crazy. There will be national identity here, but there will also be politics. Who expected that? National identity and politics. This calls our mind or should call our mind back to Isaiah 60 once again, verses 3 through 5. And the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from, from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. 
Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. It's a beautiful picture of representatives of every tribe, nation, and tongue coming together as the single body of Christ dwelling in his city together. I don't know what it means that there will be kings. I don't understand that. I tried my best this week, Gerald, to try to figure out what that means and who these kings are going to be. But I do know this. There will be no more false pride, vanity, and idolatry. And these kings, when they come into the city, they will not be about their own agenda and they will not be like the kings in Revelation 17 looking to prostitute the city for their own gain. They will bring their glory to His glory. And their rule will be in light of His glory. We see another reality in verse 25. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no more night there. It tells us that the gates will never be shut. Once again, Isaiah 60, verse 11 this time. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night that shall not be shut. The people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. What this means is there's no threat. In the ancient world, people would go outside the city walls and they would do their work, but when night fell, you better be back inside. Why? Because night gave the, gave the occasion for assault and for robbery and for others to come and attack the city. It was always a picture of threat. And these watchmen would go to their high towers and the whole night would be strenuous anxiety, making sure that we see that nobody is attacking at night because it's hard to see then. There will be no need for watchmen in this kingdom. There will be no need for watchmen, no need to shut the gates because there is no more threat. No more night means opportunity for an enemy to attack and there will be no more deception. Schreiner says this, evil is completely absent in the new creation. There is nothing that can remove the peace and security and goodness of what is to come. For the glory of what is to come, for the glory of God and of the Lamb providing unending light to the city. Once again, brothers and sisters, it's not about the gates not being shut. It's about his presence. That evil will not be able to come into his presence. It is done away with once and for all. We read in verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. I think that they points back um, to a few verses before um, to the kings who will bring in the nations that come into Uh, The city there, they will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations. I believe this is going to be a social place with bustling activity. It's going to be a cosmopolitan, multicultural place. Heaven is not going to be representative of one culture. It's going to be all the cultures together. Can you imagine? Babink writes, in that community which Christ has purchased and gathered from all nations, languages, and tongues, all the nations included, maintain their their distinct place and calling. And all those nations, each in accordance with its own distinct national character, bring into the new Jerusalem all that they have received from God in the way of glory and honor. The truth is, nothing good will be lacking. We will share in his goodness and glory together. We will worship together. Even in an abundance of cultural identities, we will be one people of God. What brilliance in that diversity. What beauty in This people that we see here, nothing but abundance in the presence of the Lord. There is no more rebellion, no more rivalry, and no more conceit. We will dwell together as the people of God. We see that God's people are whole. God's people is complete. It's lacking in nothing. And that is because of the reality of the final verse, verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, 
nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We see a picture of sin's eradication, never to return. Its consequences completely done away with. And we see this all the way through the scriptures, foreshadowing this. Isaiah 52, 1, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Joel three seventeen. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. Ezekiel 44, verse 9. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. Russell Moore says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and declared it good. God does not surrender this good creation to Satan, but wins it back through the blood of Christ which frees creation's rulers from the sentence of, of death for sin, God restores and recreates a world that vindicates his original creation purposes. We are walking through the story in our Sunday school class, and we see the cultural mandate that is given by God to work the land and produce culture that brings me glory and be fruitful and multiply. God will achieve his purposes. We're going to turn there next week, talking about what it means to work here and to produce that kind of culture that glorifies him and be able to do that perfectly. But, it says, those who will be there, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And brothers and sisters, none of us will be there because we earned it. And none of us will be there because we deserve it. None of us will be puffed up. All of us will be asking why. Why me? One final quote from the ESV study Bible. The story begins with God in eternal glory. And it ends with God and his people in eternal glory. And at the center stands the cross where God revealed his glory through his son. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? couple of questions as we lead into a time of response. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? The basis for being a part of this city one day has nothing to do with how much good we do and how much bad we do. There will be no scales on judgment day. It all comes down to how did you respond to Jesus? Because Jesus is the only one who has made propitiation for us. He is the only one that has satisfied the legal demands of God on our behalf and accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. The question is, have you responded to him through faith? Have you trusted in him, resting in all that he accomplished for you as a substitute savior? If you have not done that today, the invitation is there. The command is there to trust in Christ. Run to him. Is this vision in this passage a picture of your future hope this morning? Secondly, what is your greatest treasure? What is the longing of your heart when you think about heaven? 
What is the basis of your hope? Do you long to experience the fullness of the presence of God? How does that longing fuel your pursuit of his presence now? Brothers and sisters, if the longing of our heart is to dwell fully in his presence, we won't be flippant about a pursuit of his presence now. Thirdly, finally, do you desire to grow in holiness due to your desire to know the presence of God? This vision is designed to compel us in that way. Why do we pursue holiness? Not just so that we will be good. We pursue holiness because we want him. So, Father, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. God, if there be any here today who are not in Christ, God, I pray that they would look to Jesus today. They would respond in faith and through repentance. And, God, they would come to rest in him. God, I pray that they would come to be able to share in this hope that you have given your people. God, I pray that when we think about the future and when we think about what is to come, God, or that we may get excited a little bit over what this place might look like and be like. But, Father, I pray that our all-encompassing passion of our lives would be to, to dwell in your presence. God, I pray that we would long for that so much. We're not, we don't even really care what it's going to be like just because we want to be in your presence so badly. And, God, I pray that that would affect our lives today. Father, I pray that we would desire to grow in holiness because we want to know you. God, I pray that you would not allow us to be a people who settle for knowing about you. And I pray that we would desire to know you. God, show us the responsibility that we have to compel each other in that way, Father. I pray, Lord, that among this church family, Lord, that we would be intentional about pointing each other's hearts to you. And God, as we face struggles, I pray that we would be consistent and pointing each other to this hope. God, this hope that has ramifications for my life today, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will complete this work in us, that you are using all things for our good in bringing this work to completion. God, I pray that we would be faithful in turning each other's hearts towards this reality. So God, thank you for this time that we've been able to share this morning. And God, I pray that you would help us to know how to respond to you now and in the coming days. Father, that we would live in light of this truth. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray these things. Amen.